If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Stocks for beginners. So if you have a strategy and it's workable, even in a system that experiences a shock, you want to stick to it. You don't want to try to beat the market so much by selling and then rebuying because usually that never works. Flexibility in an investment sense has been shown in academic research time and time again that selling to not lose more money and then rebuying at a later point just doesn't work. You're better off almost always sticking it out because usually what happens is that you miss the bounce back and that's a lot of growth that you'll miss. Hi, and welcome back to Stocks for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatello. Many people think of Wall Street as the preserve of enormous investment banks and hedge funds, the wolves of Wall Street and the big shorters. So it's always good to hear from smaller players who are only dealing in millions, not billions. Hello, Michael. Hi, Phil. How are you doing? Good. Michael Mills is the principal and CEO of Infinitary Fund, a limited partnership based in New York that provides investment advice in a pooled investment vehicle designed for long-term investors. So, Michael, tell us about your background and where you've come from to this point. Yeah, so my background is that I grew up in the suburbs north of Boston in the United States. I studied economics and political science at UMass Lowell, which is a local university there. And then during my junior year, a friend and I decided to begin working on an investment advisory firm together, which eventually culminated in us launching Infinitary Fund in 2019. Uh, My career background includes private investigations, equity consulting, financial planning and analysis. And now currently I'm running the fund, working at Bob's Discount Furniture in their financial planning and analysis department and living in New York with my wife. So private investigations, tell us about that. Yeah. So the company that I worked at was based out of White Plains, New York, and they basically specialized in providing due diligence investigations for private financial organizations. So an investment bank or a hedge fund or a high net worth individual might come to us and say that they need us to investigate a company or a person that they want to do business with. And we would basically scour all public resources and collect as much information we can on that entity or person and provide it back to them. Usually people were looking out for reputational risks, so they didn't want to work with or invest in anyone or any company that would have a lot of like sexual harassment or, or discrimination lawsuits or people who said politically sensitive things on Twitter, that kind of thing. So you're kind of a, a financial Colombo, were you? <laughs> yeah, I guess you could say that. <laughs> While you were studying, you came across and met your current partner, your current business co-founder, Nicholas B. Spores. Tell us about that meeting and what it was that piqued your interest in investing and starting this fund. Yeah, so I entered university at around 2013. And I would say I met Nick probably around 2014, 2015. And we became friends. It was through like an indirect meeting through a mutual friend group that we had, we shared. And 
I guess you could say there wasn't much interest, I guess you could say, in our friendship to begin with. But then eventually, around 2016, he ended up being a roommate for a few months. And, you know, we found that we shared a lot of passions within economics. And he was extremely passionate in math and shared his projects that he'd been working on. And eventually he invited me to help work with him on his investment process that would eventually become the investment process for Infinitary Fund. So it was almost accidental in a sense, but you know, once we found out what our mutual interests were, we just clicked very well together and have been working together pretty much since 2016. I suppose uh, sharing a room <laughs> would um, lead to some longer conversations. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what were these conversations about? Because he wasn't from an investing background? No, he has a mathematical background. So at the time, he was in graduate school for mathematics at the same university. And so he doesn't come from an investment background, but his sense basically was that, you know, if he was going to go into a mathematics background, he wanted to apply it to something that would also be able to, you know, generate income for him. So that was the primary idea that made him start working on investment philosophies. And then that eventually culminated into his idea to launch this fund. We talk a lot about a lot of things, honestly. Our interests were broad between not only me and Nick, but also the third roommate that we were living with at the time. We talk about anything ranging from just general philosophy to political science, geopolitics, economics, math, you know, it really depends. But we had a lot of interests and it wasn't difficult to spend lots of time talking about something along those subjects. Which particular aspect of mathematics was Nick able to apply to investing philosophy? So I guess you could say set theory, if people are familiar with that. Isn't that Venn diagrams? Venn diagrams are part of set theory? Yeah, that's like an example, a way to conceptualize it. But set theory is essentially the way that most of mathematics has been built upon. So if you think of a simple expression, y equals mx plus b, that Y is essentially a set of the components that make it up. So MX plus B is packaged together into one set, which equals Y, right? So set theory is essentially a foundation, again, for a lot of what mathematics is. But what Nick has discovered is that there have been some errors in the current foundations of mathematics and in set theory So what that basically means is that he's deviated from orthodox mathematics and has reconstructed set theory based off of his own research, which is how he was able to devise the insights that we now use for the fund. Well, let's get back to you. And um, you mentioned in your topics of discussion amongst your roommates, economics, and that's your major area of interest. And um, I was just interested to hear about your ideas about the common characteristics of wealthy countries. Yeah, I mean, there are certainly no shortage of contrasts in the development trends of high-income nations, but there are certainly some shared characteristics to varying degrees. But one main thing that you generally see among high-income countries, examples being the United States, Germany, Japan, France, is that there's usually a lot of intense collaboration at one point or another between government sector, private sector, academic institutions, So what that usually looks like 
practically speaking, is a large amount of money and attention is usually diverted towards a particular industry or aspect of the economy. And just the fact that if any success is found in these areas, usually that breeds a lot of compounding growth within those areas. You can think of just the way that when any area becomes economically viable, you usually see a lot of compound growth over time. You know, you think of New York City or Silicon Valley, you know, those places didn't start off in the sense that they were planned to be what they are today. They started off, they became successful, and that success basically compounded over time until they are now the economic powerhouses that they are today, if that makes sense. And some of the common characteristics, uh, I mean, we had a, a previous discussion where you mentioned um, that a lot of government investment, this I'm, I'm assuming is the kind of collaboration that you're talking about, can lead to some of these um, greater benefits leading forward. Yes, absolutely. So I can give you two specific examples of what I mean, just to paint a better picture. So if you think about the United States, a lot of growth that it experienced in the late 1800s and also the early 1900s came about from agricultural productivity increases. That was a process that started in the 1860s with public policy acts from the government to basically create foundations for state universities to pursue research in mechanical and agricultural arts. Because that was moderately successful at the time, more policies were enacted to give those areas more money. Eventually, by 1940, almost 40% of federal funds were directed towards essentially agricultural research. And basically from 1940 onwards, that's when the sector started reaping huge dividends in agricultural productivity. And that also created indirectly, and this is what I mean by success breeds success, these consistently funded areas over time basically created a situation where now you have chemical companies that sprouted up like Monsanto and DuPont, and those had indirectly created innovations in the chemical sector as a result of all this research activity in just indirect sector, so to speak. So another example would be if you looked at Japan and what happened after isolation ended in 1854. So the government of Japan set out to basically change a lot of different aspects of their economy so they can be competitive, not only because they were threatened militarily, but also because they saw a lot of innovations that were taking place abroad that they wanted to take advantage of. So what happened is they not only imported a lot of technology to reverse engineer it from countries such as Britain, but they also imported professors from these countries. So the University of Tokyo, for example, essentially has a huge legacy in engineering, but a lot of the early parts of that legacy started with a lot of imported British professors coming into the area. So and an unintended consequence of this was a lot of graduates from these places that they set up went on to found major manufacturing companies in Japan. Now, that wasn't the necessarily the intended goal of what they were doing when they set up these academic institutions, but that is just an indirect result. So that's kind of what I mean by compounding growth. A lot of attention and money goes into an area, it's successful, and over time, it just continues to stack and people consolidate even more and companies grow up around these spaces and eventually you get this well-oiled machine, so to speak. So in a broader sense, many of the companies that uh, we invest in in the stock market are the direct byproduct of these forces then? 
Yeah, well, direct or indirect. So they certainly reap the benefits of these forces. MIT, for example, we all know how much innovation comes out of that university and also how many people come out of that university that start companies. A lot of the money they received, for example, in the 1940s came from the government, like Office of Technology programs that came from the U.S. government. So again, it's all an interlocking force that works together. And again, it's not necessarily intentional, although there could be certain aspects of it that are intentional, but it's just the fact that, again, that you're having all these people working together towards some sort of common goal. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So your thoughts about economics and economic policy and economic theory, does that inform any of the investing philosophy at Infinitary? We certainly look out for what's going on in the economy and within politics as well. But we use a quantitative process driven by an algorithm, which isn't necessarily informed by economics. It's more informed by the underlying mathematics that Nick had generated when he was doing the initial research. So I guess you could say we go deeper than economics. Because again, economics is more surface level when it comes to using mathematics to solve a problem. So many hedge funds do use algorithms to base their investments on. Is that the case? Is that how many hedge funds work? It depends on the hedge fund. There are quant funds, which, yes, they will systematize via an algorithm. Yep. What is a quant fund? What does that mean, quant fund? So it's a broad term. If you think of a common way that people can decide to pick a stock, again, this isn't advice, but they may, might look at a situation, say, look at Home Depot, for example, and they will say, okay, there's a hurricane coming, a major hurricane. And when that happens, usually Home Depot stock rises because a lot of materials are needed to rebuild the area that was devastated. So one might say, that's a qualitative assessment, essentially. So you look at that and you say, okay, I'm going to buy the stock because of that. So that's a qualitative assessment, whereas a basically a quantitative process means that you're using an algorithm to derive your process, to run your process, as opposed to a qualitative measure like choosing to buy Home Depot because there's a hurricane coming and you want to hedge the fact that people are going to buy materials to rebuild. So the mathematics behind your fund, are they based on things like price movements and volume and the kind of things that you see as parts of technical analysis? It looks like technical analysis in a sense, but it's not technical analysis. It's essentially a new form of data analytics that we've invented. Basically, all we need to do is input price data, but the what it's doing with the price data is fundamentally different as far as we can tell from what anyone else is doing. So that's part of what gives us the edge, but also just the underlying mathematics that it's using and machine learning techniques that it's using are also what gives it its power. 
And so this analysis, is this applied to the whole of the stock market or just particular parts that you're only interested in? So we focus mainly on large cap stocks, so primarily the S&P 500. So we collect price data every day on all the stocks within that set. <laughs> There's that word set <laughs> that you know we're targeting. And then the algorithm is essentially able to generate new patterns that we don't predetermine. And then we choose our stocks from there, from its recommendations. Algorithms can be very simple things as well. They're not necessarily going to be incredibly complex, but many investors do set up a process where they want to have a checklist before they're going to jump in and buy a particular stock. Is that analogous to what you're doing? Do you mean the final product or do you mean it as a part of the process? As part of the process. In a sense, sort of. So the algorithm in an oversimplification produces a list that we should invest in of stocks, but it doesn't automatically execute the trades. And we do that to kind of have that final check on the process. So we look at the companies and, you know, we make sure there's nothing immediately obvious going on because obviously an algorithm is faulty. It may not necessarily have all the information. So, you know, we check to make sure that there isn't anything major going on in the company that it may not have detected, but it doesn't take much. It's a very short check. It really isn't much that we have to rely on for that. And how many stocks would you have in the fund at any particular moment? So it depends. But essentially what happens if someone were to give us an allocation, the algorithm doesn't know the amount of money that's being inputted, but it will almost always proportion the output by about five stocks and one bond ETF. So at this point, I would say we have about 30 plus stocks and some bonds sprinkled in there at this point in our portfolio. And um, what's the churn like? How often would um, stocks be added and removed to portfolios? It actually sounds like you're doing it on individual allocations at any one time. Yeah, so obviously not everyone in the fund comes in at the same time. So what you end up with are essentially sub-portfolios. So you have the entire portfolio, but then if, if a batch of people come in that make up 30% of the value of the portfolio, that 30% value will then begin a clock where after that portion has been in the portfolio for about a year, then we sell after the fact. So it's a one-year timeline horizon for any particular batch that we've bought at any particular time. Is there any reason why you only focus on the top 500 companies rather than the whole universe? Yes, because S&P 500 is a space where you can still capture a large amount of growth but you can also mitigate the risk to a large extent because usually the the adage in the industry goes that if you want high returns, you got to take high risk. So the S&P 500 is a place where we personally believe that you can balance the two, where you can still get the high returns, but you don't have to get that high risk as well because a lot of these companies, they're not disappearing anytime soon. The likelihood that the entire portfolio would sink in any given time is so astronomically low because these companies have been around for years, if not decades, some even over 100 years. So they're solid companies to invest in. But also because these companies are so large, you could continually put money in without diluting the strategy. So say if you were investing in smaller companies, you would have only so much runway space before you would have to pick another stock because 
at that point, you're dealing in hundreds of millions instead of tens of billions or even hundreds of billions for the companies that are in the S&P 500. Tell us about emotions. Obviously, having a process and an algorithm like this means that um, emotions aren't playing a huge part in the decisions that you're making in the fund. Is that a big help for yourselves and investors? Yeah, I believe so. I think, obviously, in a situation like the stock market, and as you personally put more money into it, I think it becomes more dangerous when you react emotionally. So if you think about like a market crash, people always sell on those because either they're afraid or they're trying to rebalance, they're essentially just trying to keep ahead of the curve. And our philosophy is that if you put in a strategy and you put it in metrics that are able to withstand shocks to the system, then you should not react in those situations because that's usually where you lose. So for example, when the pandemic crash happened in early 2020, or even the crash that's happened as a result of the Russia-Ukraine invasion, it's because we're long-term oriented, you know, we don't sell in those situations because our system is designed to handle those shocks. It can be very tempting because in some cases, you know, we're seeing the value go down, but almost always, if not every time, you know, we've come out on top if we just stick to our guns. So if you have a strategy and it's workable, even in a system that experiences a shock, you want to stick to it. You don't want to try to beat the market so much by selling and then rebuying because usually that never works. Flexibility in an investment sense has been shown in academic research time and time again that selling to not lose more money and then rebuying at a later point just doesn't work. You're better off almost always sticking it out because usually what happens is that you miss the bounce back. And that's a lot of growth that you'll miss if that happens. You just want to survive, don't you? You mean for us? <laughs> no investors in general. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes. It's all about survival, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And a lot of people, you know, they're chasing one or two or 3%, you know, in a lot of these big institutions, they're trying to save those margins. But we don't believe that's the most efficient way to go about it. So that's why we don't do that. You mentioned previously that uh, bonds play a part in some of these portfolios or in this portfolio. Is that part of the cushioning effect? Yes, but it's not by any means the majority of the cushioning effect. And I don't know if I would say that we even have so much a cushioning effect built in. It's more of that the algorithm has been fine-tuned in such a way where it's able to pick the best stocks even in a situation such as a market crash. So I wouldn't say that it's an all-weather fund, but that's, in a sense, what it's doing. So if you think of you know, the risks associated with market crashes on any given year, you, know, you have a bell curve. What is the likelihood of a market crash happening? The tail ends, those small percentages, the 2.5%, what it traditionally is, is essentially what those small risks are in terms of a market crash. But when you plan for the entire bell curve, you're essentially able to get an output that is somewhat resilient in all situations. So we're recording on the 28th of April and um, the market's been through, of course, just, you know, it's a little bit of a more volatility and then suddenly a little bit less volatility at the moment. But in your view, what's the macroeconomic looking like this year, 2022? Yeah, so I can 
mainly speak to what's going on in the United States. I have not as much knowledge as to what's going on in other major countries around the world. But as far as what's happening in the United States, I think we're going to continue to see rising inflation. I think a lot of people think that, and that's primarily going to be driven by energy price increases, essentially. I think it's been very palpable in the last year and a half, like where the price increases have been. You know, you go to McDonald's, it's very obvious to see that they've increased their prices by a large margin. So I think inflation is essentially what we're going to be looking at for this year. And I think a lot of people don't really expect it to cool off until 2023, maybe even the tail end of that. I do wonder what's going to happen with the interest rates. I think in a sense, it's almost too little too late because inflation is in a sense almost a runaway train. So you're seeing the Federal Reserve now reacting where they're starting to consider raising interest rates by half a percentage point at any given time. And they've talked about doing that maybe three or four times in 2022 alone. But this is probably something they should have done already before any of this had happened, because now inflation is risen and it's continuing to rise and it's not getting any better. And I worry that it's probably going to be a similar situation as what happened in the 1980s, where we experienced high inflation and not large amount of growth. And that's going to be quite a break on the economy because one of the major forces that can act on markets is rising interest rates. Yeah, absolutely. Rising interest rates can, in a sense, be good for an economy. Obviously, it depends on where the business cycle is. But I think part of the issue is that for the last 10, 15 years, essentially since 2008, we've had a situation where we've had cheap debt and there weren't a lot of checks in place to make sure that the people who are receiving debt should be receiving debt. So, you know, you think about what happened in 2008 in the mortgage crisis, there a lot of people who received mortgages who maybe, you know, they weren't the right people to receive a mortgage, you know, they weren't able to keep up with it. And I think a similar situation has arisen where now you see a lot of companies coming in on the stock exchange. They're not profitable. Some companies don't even generate revenue and yet they have raised billions of dollars and, I think that's partially as a result of the cheap debt situation. And those are just inefficient allocations of money. You know, if interest rates were higher, I would imagine money would have been allocated in companies that were a little bit stronger. As always, we might see an unraveling and um, basically the market correcting itself in a sense. Well, yeah, that's essentially what happens is that when you have all these companies that have not only cheap debt, that are not profitable, don't generate revenue, and they don't do well in a normal market situation, once you start to raise the interest rates, everyone flips out. (laughs) That's why you see the market reacts so aggressively when rates rise by 25 basis points, when in reality, that's not really a huge increase, (laughs) you know? Yeah. And a lot of people don't think of uh, basis points. So that's uh, 0.25 of a percent. Is that correct? Yep. How long has Infinitary been around for and uh, what's the performance been like? So Infinitary Fund launched in January 2019. Our performance has essentially been a CAGR of 20 plus percent, which is essentially the average return that we experience in any year. For 2019, we had about 55% after fees. And 2020 was about 4%. 2021 was about 44%. How can listeners find out more about Infinitary Fund? Yeah, so we have two ways or two avenues where people can go. They can go to the Twitter, which is at Infinitary Fund handle, or they can go to the LinkedIn, which is just Infinitary Fund LP. 
And in both pages, we post insights about economics, math, and sometimes our thoughts about the market as a whole. And of course, we'll put links in the episode notes and the blog post so that you can just click on it rather than having to try and write it down as we listen. Michael Mills, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you, Phil. I appreciate you having me on. If you found this podcast helpful, please tell a friend, especially if it's someone who needs to start thinking about investing for their future. You'll be helping them and helping me to keep this show on the road. Stocks for Beginners is for information and educational purposes only. It isn't financial advice and you shouldn't buy or sell any investments based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only, not Stocks for Beginners. This podcast doesn't replace professional advice regarding your personal financial needs, circumstances or current situation. And thank you for listening to my podcast. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.